This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Well, today I have a guest who has written an amazing book. Her name is Beth H., and her book is titled We're Not All Egomaniacs, Adapting the 12 Steps for Alcoholics with Low Self-Esteem. And it's an incredible book. Uh, She starts by um, relating her own personal story growing up and how um, her experience as a child um, impacted her self-esteem. And then what she discovered about um, Alcoholics Anonymous and their and the approach that, you know, the founders took with recovery, not really fitting with, um, you know, a person who's dealing with self-esteem issues. So anyway, there's it's a very incredible book that you put together here. Um, what I'm really amazed at, Beth, um, is how long did it take you to do this? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in here. Well, 35 years of sobriety <laughs> and, and, about a, and about a year of writing. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was all been forming in my head over a long time. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that you you gave a talk um, on this topic about, um, was it in 2018? Yeah, the, in Toronto. In Toronto. The, yeah. yeah, and this yeah. really goes into a lot more detail than that. And that was a very popular talk. You know, a lot of people could relate to it. And I think, honestly, that was the first time, to be honest with you, that I ever really thought in terms that, you know, that I was, I was forcing myself into, into some sort of a role that didn't really fit for me. And it was really, you know, a different way of, of looking at things for me at that time. So I don't know, why don't we just get right into this book? Um, You start by, by describing your own personal story growing up and how your relationship with your parents and your family impacted your self-esteem. And I wonder if we could start with that. Yeah, um, I thought my family was completely normal. I, I didn't, I had no idea that there was um, abuse or neglect going on. And I, but I always felt bad. By the age of five, I, I knew there was something horribly wrong with me. And I, I attribute it, well, you know, we're all born precious, right? Nobody looks at a newborn baby and says, well, you're, you know, you deserve to have bad things happen to you. <laughs> but somewhere along the line, we lose that feeling. And um, a lot of our formation of our, you know, who we are happens by the way that we're treated by our caregivers and what they reflect back to us to show us who we are. And my mom just always looked annoyed or contempt, felt like looked on me with contempt. And I don't know why. I I think she didn't want to be a mother, (laughs) But, but she went on to have four more kids after me and I was the second one. So, you know, so so I didn't know what to make of that, but, um, and she also made everyone fit her reality. Like if she didn't, when you would ask for something, if she didn't want to do it right now, because she was reading, she was always reading and it wouldn't be like, can I'll help you out in five minutes. I want to finish this chapter first. It would be like, you're lazy, selfish, and you're responsible. Why don't you get it yourself? You know, <laughs> and 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 it was always not just a, this specific behavior that you're in trouble for. It was you're contemptible and disgusting, and you know the whole person rejection of the whole person. Yep, I could really relate to that. Um, I grew up in a similar environment. Uh, my mother was uh, mentally ill, so uh, a lot of the cues I got from her, verbally and non-verbally, were really similar. Um, and, uh, also for my father who was dealing with the stress of having somebody mentally ill in the household, um, and not really understanding, you know, growing up that, um, I was, that, that, that wasn't normal, you know, uh, but what I find interesting, 
death is later in the book, and I don't want to jump ahead too far, but this is this this is the part that really touched me is when you're dealing with this stuff later on in your recovery, you you have a way of addressing it. I mean, you're looking you you're not judging your mother. You're not you're not you understand that she came with her own trauma, but you have a way of standing up to her finally and and addressing the behaviors and the actions. I find myself too often excusing my what my parents had done and not really addressing the harm. You know, does that make sense? It seems like you had a healthy way of addressing the harm that I never really thought of or incorporated. It took a while. I mean, everybody kind of has their parents on a pedestal and is willing to excuse their behavior. But, you know, having become a parent myself, did, you know, did, did that mean all my behavior should get <laughs> right. because I'm a parent now? I certainly never gave that option to myself, right? In fact, when you become a parent, you really realize how much you don't know rather than, you know, deserving to be on some sort of pedestal. And I just needed to make the distinction that when you looked up, down on me all the time, that wasn't because I'm contemptible and unlovable. That was because you didn't have the capacity to love your children. And I, because I, I, I need that separation. And, and actually, once I've done that, then my relationship with my mother can get better. But I also learn not to go to her for the, you know, the things you would expect a mother to have to offer because she doesn't. She didn't have it, have it within her. Yeah. I guess that I was somehow conditioned to so much. So, uh, and you talk about this too in the book, I, the conditioning that I got from my experience in AA was to focus on me so much and just forgive the other person, you know, and I understand there's power and forgiveness and everything, but it was almost like letting letting that off the hook and going ahead and accepting the responsibility for what they did when I was just a child, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, well, what was your part in it? Exactly. Right? Exactly. What is your part in it? And that is just drilled into us in traditional AA, the way that the steps are worded. What is and our that's part? that's not how you deal with trauma. No. That is not how you handle trauma. It's not. So why don't we go back a little bit and talk about why that is. You know, you wrote about the history behind AA a little bit and why the steps are written in such a way. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah. Um, well, the, I mean, this is just my opinion, but, you know, based on having read a lot of about early AA and um, the, the earliest members of AA all seem to have this type, this similar personality type of being the egomaniac, being grandiose, being very self-centered, putting their needs ahead of others all the time. Um, and, and, and it's narcissistic behavior. I mean, I, I've kind of started using the word egomaniac and narcissist, um, interchangeably but it got sort of conflated with so this is the alcoholic personality type and for I mean I imagine that the first AAs were all like that because they were the lowest bottoms because they were the ones who could not admit defeat who could not admit to being I'm not all-powerful I'm not omnipotent you know because any admission of that is too harmful to their psyche now, now these people had trauma too, and they but they developed a different strategy. Exactly, exactly. To, for, there are there are nowadays they say there's four types of response to trauma, and a healthy person, you know, can use all four at different times. And uh, but some of us just develop like a survival strategy, and and Bill's was the, to to, be to dominate. That, he, I found that interesting. That, yeah, but mine wasn't. Mine no. was. Mine was to be codependent and appeasing and avoid conflict and and always put others' needs ahead of my own. Right. 
That's interesting. Uh, I, I, I wonder if you might think, you know, looking at Bill and knowing, knowing his history, how, you know, he grew, how he grew up and he was pretty much abandoned by his, his parents and had, had a lot of trauma growing up. Um, he may have had low self-esteem, but he compensated for it or coped with it by insisting that he be the best at everything that he be, you know, that he not ever be second place. You know, he'd be the top. I think he yeah. said in his biography, the top man. Yeah. That's narcissism. It is a cover up for low self-esteem, but, but some people live that role, you know, like first it becomes like a mask that they put on and then it becomes, you know, then the costume kind of just turns into their skin and they lose the sight of the fact that it, that that's not their real self. Right. So for him, he had this need to deflate his ego because he, and you can, you can, you can see it too in, in his writings, how he was egotistical, you know, and he, he had a need to, to reduce that. And being the egotistical person he was, he assumed that we were all going to fit like fit into that. And maybe most of the guys did at that time, you know, but, um, yeah, so you put something together, the steps together from the perspective of someone who's coming into coming into the rooms with a different set of coping mechanisms where you're you're more from you're like you're from a place more being more codependent, lower self-esteem. And I wonder if you can talk about the difference between the two, the the narcissist and then the person that's shame-based. Yeah, I actually have a whole chapter on that. <laughs> but um, I went through some of the characteristics, like a, a, an ego, uh, a narcissistic person has a sense of entitlement. They expect special treatment. They expect people to comply with their demands. I have almost no sense of entitlement. <laughs> And, you know, I feel undeserving, unworthy. If there's something good there, I best leave it for someone who deserves it more than I do. Um, they pretty much will, a narcissist will take whatever they want because they assume they deserve it. And I won't even ask for what I want <laughs> because I assume I don't deserve it. Um, we both seek validation from others, but... The, a narcissist seeks validation to prove he's the best, and shame-based people seek validation more like just to confirm that they're not as bad as they think they are. <laughs> you know, hoping to to feel that um, narcissists are self-centered and they think the world revolves around them. People like me that, that adopt this other um, survival strategy are other-centered. We, we focus all the time on what will people think if I do this? How will it look if I do that? Not how will I be if I choose this course of action, but how will it look if I choose this course of action? Yeah, I thought that was a great comparison. And and you were careful to to note that you know, it's kind of it's kind of a continuum. You, you might find yourself in, 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 in both in both categories, but overall you know, if you see yourself in, you know, the shame-based category more so than the narcissist uh, category, then then this is going to be a useful tool for you. This book and this way of looking at the steps will be useful for you. Right. And I also, I don't want to force anybody that didn't fit into Bill's little pigeonholes to think that now they have to fit into mine because, uh, you know, there are other trauma responses. There's flight and their sprees and I didn't write about them because I don't that wasn't my experience and I don't know a lot about it and I hope other people will, will write about that and you know and, I know pe- I, I know people like Bill who are narcissists and they would benefit from something from from, from what he what he had to do I mean when you think about it when you think about you know the narcissist can never be can never be wrong always has to be the best you know all this kind of stuff you know, as their way of dealing with their life, they do, they do, they do need that. So I wouldn't want to take that away from them either. Well, 
Sorry, I was almost about to get political, but it's I, the I, know. I, I couldn't. Have, I know there's an elephant in the room. <laughs> we'll, we'll skip that. <laughs> I know. Actually, I was thinking about that as I was reading that, reading, that, reading all of that. But um, yeah, that's it's just really, really interesting. So anyway, um, you also you also um, talk about you you wrote about the processing of feelings. And how it seems that sometimes in the program, we tend to kind of gloss over the feelings. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong in how I understood this, that it's more like we don't really process them. We, we just, we, there's a higher power is going to take away from it. There's, there's some way that we just kind of brush those away. I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit, about the processing of feelings and how we handle or, and how you deal with that. So, um, again, this probably is a different, different strategies for different people. But for me, I learned to repress my feelings when I was very young because nobody was interest, interested in talking to me about them anyway. I didn't even know how to really differentiate them. I was feeling okay or I was feeling bad, you know, that hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I, would ha- I didn't know if I was lonely and I, I didn't know if I was angry. <laughs> Those would be bad, bad category. Um, but so um, I like the saying: you, feelings are like children. You, you don't have to let them drive the car, but you can't just keep locking them in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> and mine have been locked in the trunk for a long, long time. Yeah. And, and you know, other people have the, the other problem: they let them drive the car. You know, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> One of my, yeah, one of my sisters is kind of like that. But, um, but anyhow, they're still in there. They need to come out. And, like, it's very important to get in touch with the anger over abuse, which means to get over the denial about the abuse first. And, um, and it's, that's all a process. I, uh, like, you have to feel the feeling. You have to acknowledge it. You have to, uh, this is the only way that the feelings, um, can attenuate, you know, can diminish so that they're not, because when we don't handle them and they're still inside us, they cause, they still drive our behavior, even though we're not aware of them. You know, we'll, we'll have oversized reactions to, um, to little triggers because it's, you know, because of all the things that's happened to us in the past, that one little thing brings up again, but we don't, we don't even know it. Mm -hmm. We're not aware that that's what we're doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you. I, I don't know if it was in that chapter where you wrote about this, but it was something that I could relate to. That sometimes um, these feelings come out like there de- there's a delayed reaction, you know. Um, oh, for me, because I learned to repress anger at, at such a young age that yeah, like somebody will say something, say. Well, I was like talked about that somebody that I, I was driving and they asked me to pull back a little bit. And, you know, being the codependent people pleaser without even thinking, my foot's on the brake before they even finish their sentence. Oh, sure. You know, and the next day I thought, wow, I would never do that to someone. Right. You know, <laughs> and then I got really mad. <laughs> yeah. I found that funny for on a lot of different levels. First of all, it's kind of funny that she was kind of terrified of your driving <laughs> enough to, to ask you to pull back. But also, I could relate so well to that having that having that delayed reaction. That 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 that's and that just comes from repressing those those feelings, uh, the anger and and whatever, um, and not letting them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My knee jerk reaction is to comply. Where Bill's was Bill's was defiance minus compliance. Yeah. I wonder, did you have a similar experience as me? Um, I, 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 um, look, I've, I'm, I'm now old. I'm looking back at my recovery, which started 33 years ago and I'm glad that I stayed sober and overall it was a good experience, but sometimes I wish I could go back in time and talk to that guy and say, you know what? You really don't have to conform to, to this you don't have to try to make yourself fit in, but I was always, I was always um, so important for me to conform to, to whatever the group wanted. 
were you doing that? And, and was it, how did you break free from that? If that's what you were, if you were in that mode? It was, it was really hard. And that's why I wrote the book mainly was because I don't, for other, for other people that may be going through the same experience, you come into AA and they tell you what you're like. And it may, and it may not be what you're like. Right. But you, you try to force yourself into that. <laughs> and, and not only that, but to tell me I'm self-ruled and riot was just a massive shame trigger, you know, because I was tiptoeing around trying to be polite to everyone, you know, I mean, I could say drunk driving, that's, you know, that's self-will run riot. I'm obviously not thinking about the other drivers, but you know, my overall conduct is to be more courteous toward others than I am to myself. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And well, at home, when I was a kid growing up, I got gaslighted all the time. My mom would, you know, if I said I'm hungry, no, no, you're not. I'm hurt. No, you're not. You just want sympathy. I'm sick. No, you're not. You're just trying to get attention. And and these are all symptoms of her not wanting to respond to a child's needs. But they were all put on me as don't trust what you're feeling. Don't trust what you're feeling as it's wrong. You just don't know yourself as well as your mom does. (laughs) So, um, some of some of these messages that I got in in AA were total gaslighting of of me. You, this is who you are. Well, you know what? I don't I don't I don't really think I do that. I I'm trying to think of all these times I tried to control situations and I I try to control people's impressions of me. That's typical codependence. Only show people you know the good side of you, what you want them to see, but. I wasn't, I wasn't controlling. In fact, it, for me, it's like a sin to enforce my will over someone else's. Like that makes me feel terrible that you would think I would do that. And, and but yet that's what they kept telling me. And it was only really when I came to secular AA and I was already 28 years sober before I met a single other person in, that was sober and, and, and secular. And man, it was, I went to that concert or the conference in Santa Monica and I felt like I had, you know, just gotten out of a communist country and <laughs> wow, there's freedom of speech here. The gag order's been lifted. I can say what I really think about AA. I can question some of the things in the book and, and, and that's okay. And that really liberated me a lot too, because it wasn't just the God thing that I struggled with. It was the whole personality thing too. Yeah. Okay. So your, so, your experience is pretty similar to mine then. Um, Cause I, I, I was uh, sober for 25 years before I um, began questioning my, the whole higher power thing is where it started for me. And um, so, yeah, so, so, so that's it's good to know that that <laughs> it's good to know that, that you struggle too. Well, and, the, <laughs> and the interesting thing is the whole it, when you read I don't know how you pronounce his last name Harry Tybout or Tebow or but anyhow so he, he says the the main reason for a higher power was because these narcissists needed to realize that they were not God right and that is the whole reason that higher power got tangled up with the sobriety message to begin with. Because it was a big deal. That was a psychic change for them. You're not God. There is a God. It's not you. Well, that wasn't my issue. My issue is I think I'm a piece of crap. Right. <laughs> right. So it would have been it would have been nice to have this for me at that time. So this this is a great service for anybody who's starting out in the program who I, I would this this is probably my favorite book that I've read so far that that takes a look at the steps from a different perspective. What What's really interesting too about it is you don't necessarily, you don't even really rewrite the actual wording of the steps, but you kind of describe the process differently. And what I really like is before you even have somebody even think about going through the steps, you have a step zero where you kind of, you got to get them ready to even start this. And I wonder if you can talk about that and why, how you came to, um, understand that, that that was important. Well, yeah, because uh, when I read the steps on the wall, 
it was all, I'm bad, I do this wrong, I'm going to look at how bad I am. And, you know, I've been doing that my whole life. <laughs> and now we're going to really tear into it. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> you know, uh, I, I wanted, it's helpful to do the steps with a positive attitude. Like, not like this is punishment. This is punishment for being a drunk. You have to go, you know, you have to go through this hazing. It's the steps are an opportunity to, to learn about ourselves and we have to get some solid ground under ourselves to begin that. We have to try to stop the criticism in our heads of everything we say and do and the self um, doubt of, do I really think this or, or do I just think I think this? <laughs> if you've been gaslighted a lot that, you know, you have that going on too. And, so yeah, I have exercises for um, like doing. I did after I did lots of affirmations for a long time because for me it was like a taboo to say something nice about myself in my own voice. I felt like I mean I felt like this guy was gonna crack open the first time I did it. It was such a no no, <laughs> and so yeah, so I needed that and and to start some self nurturing like it's so to spend a little money on myself it's okay to take a bubble bath you know instead of saying no too frivolous it's okay it's okay to relax I thought I always I always felt like I have to prove um, my worthiness to exist you know I have to justify my existence I always felt like that so I have to always be doing something constructive and and relaxing is not acceptable. Yeah. You know, I, I remember, um, at some point early in my recovery in, in AA and I was thinking about the steps and I was maybe talking to someone, talking to myself, I don't know. And it occurred to me that these steps are tearing you down before they build you up. And it's like, I didn't really need any more tearing down. When I got there, I was torn. I was already torn down. And what I like about step zero is it recognizes where, where, where I think probably most people are when they come into the rooms. I, I don't really believe that most of us come in there thinking that you know, we're, we're so great, but maybe, maybe there are a lot too. But I mean, for most of us, this is a low point in our life. The last thing we need, I think, is to be torn down even more. So it's kind of nice to, to start off. I really like that chapter because you're really giving a positive um you know, optimistic look forward to what lies ahead and why you might want to be doing this. This isn't about beating yourself up. This is about learning about yourself, about learning how a uh, different ways of processing your experiences in life. Like, like I say, I kind of reframe the steps to be more like, I don't use the term defects. I, what, the way that I learned to cope in the world, I, I'm going to admit, it wasn't serving me. I, you know, it wasn't working. I, my life was unmanageable. Um, but they weren't character defects. They were adaptations that I had to make to survive in the environment that I was living in. And so they're survival skills. And I, I love the analogy of when I talked to that Iraqi vet with PTSD, and he said, when I walk down the street, it's not the same as when you walk down the street. He said, you're probably going, look, there's a tree, there's a bird. And he's, and I'm thinking, what's behind that tree? Is that bird carrying anything? What's under that bush? Okay, well, I grew up in Iraq, <laughs> you know, so, and I learned to be hypervigilant. And just like him, those those. The, that, that type of thinking helped him survive in that environment. Now it's 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 not helpful when he comes home. Those stressors are gone, and yet he still can't stop thinking that way. And for me, it's it's the same thing. I I have these old thought patterns that I've built up over many many years that worked for the environment I was living in, but they don't work so well now. But it, but I, they're not defects of character. And that's a horrible thing to force the, to abuse the kids so they're forced to adopt some, you know, 
off-the-norm strategies for, for coping with life and then come to AA and tell them how bad they are for doing that. It is a terrible term. I And, you know, honestly, I don't think I ever had, I never had that term used prior in my life ever, prior to getting to AA, character defects, defects of character. I never, you know, I, I never thought in terms of that. Um, and so... Um, although I probably felt that I was a defective character, um, having that label just just intensified these feelings that I already had. It was like the last the last thing I needed. And for me, it was like many years later when I came to understand them the way that you understand them now as no, these were coping mechanisms that I had developed to survive that were no longer working in a sane world. And when you get into the steps, the <clears throat> one of my favorites that uh, of your steps is when you're writing about step three, I see that step the same way as you do as a commitment to recovery. But uh, what I really liked about what you wrote was your description of what recovery is. You know, because you're going to make a commitment to something and you wrote down what it is to you. And I think that would be a good practice. You know, a lot of a lot of us will like write down what the steps are to us or whatever. But I don't know if I've ever read someone that said, what is recovery to you? You know, and you and and I kind of chuckled a little bit. Um, no, no um, altering substances except for caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I drink coffee. I do morning. too. I'm, I'm drinking it right now. <laughs> I, yeah. But um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit because I thought that was really helpful. Yeah, and it probably would would have changed and grown a lot over the years. Like when I when you know when you first come in, it's probably just all about abstinence is the main thing. But when I got to learn that that was just scratching the surface of what my actual issues were, it became, you know, that staying sober is only the beginning because in order to do the recovery work, I have to feel my feelings. I have to be in reality. I have to sit with discomfort um, in order to, to, to learn how to handle it without drinking. And, but there's so much more than that. And, yeah, I am. Um, step three. So some of the things that I put down were, you know, to number well besides the abstinence, the acknowledgement that I can't do this by myself. Um, I, I need other resources besides my own, and I need to be part of recovery community. That's huge for me. I. Um, I, I try to feel my feelings and manage them appropriately. I try to be authentic instead of saying, well, I'm going to act like this to impress this person. And now I'm going to act like that to impress that person. Um, it, I Developing boundaries, defining my boundaries and then defending my boundaries, exercising. We didn't even talk them. about that, but that was something that you wrote about too. When you talked about, you know, some things that we, we need to um, understand before you even get into the recovery process, like what are boundaries, you know, and you talked, you wrote a lot about that, you know, setting boundaries and, and you, you wrote about, you know, this concept of self and, and being codependent, really important stuff to consider, you know, because a lot of you, most of your book is not dealing with the steps. It was just so interesting. You know, your book really deals with really the underlying stuff that those steps are going to be dealing with, you know, and it's good to have an understanding of what all these things are before you even have to get, get into that whole process of changing. Yeah. I, well, I, I'm, I love history and I think if I don't know my own history, uh, you know, I'm going to suffer <laughs> for it. I, um, the big book says that, you know, we get down to causes and conditions, but they don't get down to them near as much as I do. Yeah. Yeah. I also kind of wonder sometimes if your engineering background has something to do with it because you're trying to, it's like you're, you're, you're understanding the problem. Like, you know, I, I really need, I, I see there's a problem and there's a solution and you're kind of, kind of matching the two up. I might be overthinking a little bit, but it just seemed like, wow, this is, this just makes so much sense the way that this is being laid out. I just thought it was brilliant. 
um, especially, you know, not having a background in, you know, counseling or anything like that, uh, just being a person in recovery, um, that you were able to put this together was just absolutely amazing to me, actually. <laughs> Thank you very much. But it's high praise. <laughs> when you go into, um, the, uh, inventory process, there are, there are some things that you tweaked a little bit there in step four. I wonder if you might, if we can talk about that a little bit. Um, because, you know, and we did, we touched on it a little bit where, you know, one thing for sure is you don't, you don't ask yourself for those childhood situations, you know, what part did I play? You leave that. Right. Right. We did not play any part in, in being abused as a child and it's not our fault. And I mean, the reason it comes up in a four step is because we often have resentments against these people for things they said or did to us. And so you make a list of resentments, but then the big book tells you to find, you know, invariably we stepped on their toes in the past. And, but that doesn't work for, for childhood trauma. And so, I, yeah. And then that, that's the part where to get rid of the resentments, I actually stand up to these people in that's my right. head. And, that's right. Yeah. I found that really powerful. And that was, that was the part that kind of got me to thinking that I never, I never did that mentally. I never, I never had that exercise where I went back and said, you know, and addressed them as you remember when you did that, that one. Yeah. I thought that was brilliant and useful. Well, and I didn't do it to my, I didn't do it in person with my parents. I, I did it like therapeutically like to, to straighten it out in my own mind. Right. Exactly. Like it wouldn't do any good to go confront them. If it does good then fine. But I like, I like that idea. Um, I just, I don't know. I think with me, um, and I want to, I guess I don't want to go too much into talk about me. I, I, I can't help it because when I'm talk when I read a book like yours, it makes me think about how, how it, how it impacts me. And, you know, um, like that's the that was the beautiful thing about reading this book, Beth, is I would often put it down and stop and think, you know, and any book that makes you stop and think and makes me stop and think is I, I know that the author has done a really good job because I don't often like to stop and think. But this this really gave me pause to stop and think and question, wow, have I ever done that? I don't think I ever did. Maybe I should, you know, um, really, really powerful. It's very empowering. And, and I, as a person that basically gave away my power most of my life, and by that I mean I let other people decide how I'm going to feel, how I feel about myself. I, you know, I only look as good as you tell me I look today. I, I, I'm only as smart as you tell me I'm smart. I'm only going to have a good day as long as you're having a good day. I'm, <laughs> yeah, so that, that's what I call giving away my power rather than being a separate person. Then I also had in the fourth step, we have what I call resentments affecting my self-esteem because that is actually one of the categories that the big book offers for how, how does it affect me. But what I discovered was that's really a misconception of what self-esteem is. You know, you hurt my self-esteem because you made me feel bad about myself. Well, self-esteem doesn't come from, from what other people say and do. It comes from how we feel about ourselves on the inside. What actually is happening is you said something that triggered me because I have a lot of shame in this area or you're getting too close to discovering how defective I am, you know, <laughs> or you're, <laughs> you're going to make me say something sarcastic or angry to just to deflect you as a defense mechanism because you're getting too close. And, uh, to, to really focus on self-esteem is, is not to focus on what other people are saying or doing. It's for me to get rid of these buttons that people can push. And that's my responsibility. It's not the fault of the other people. Right. And you also um, addressed fear more substantially. Um, I, I, I've talked about this part of the fourth step a lot on this uh, podcast and my 
recollection of it is that the fear part is the one part that my sponsor told me I didn't do right. And it'd be, it's, it's beyond me because I did just what it told me to do. You list your fears and you ask yourself why you have them. And that's basically all they do, you know, and, and, and then you ask God to remove them. Yes, God to remove them because the reason that you have the fears is because you were God. <laughs> you thought you were God, right? So I don't know. So how did you, how did you uh, approach fears? Um, my beer cover is pretty cognitive. <laughs> and um, so, you know, there's, this is not something I've ever studied, but there is a, you know, a, skill set called risk management so so i look at a fear and first of all is this a real fear or not a real fear and um i I always think people think i'm fat but i know that i'm not so (laughs) so that's that's not a real fear and i can just kind of you know get my get myself off the ledge with that one because you know that's not real that's all in my head I know I believe it because it sounds good to me but it's really all in my head and um I you know and then I have a fear of um one of my son's families is very religious and they think I'm going to hell and I mean that's what they're teaching my grandkids and and I don't I don't want to butt heads with them. I want to, I want them in my life. I want to see my grandkids. I, I, I want to have family get togethers. So this is a, a risk that I can mitigate by not commenting on their views and by not, you know, stirring things up, not making an issue when I can just let it go. And so it's, it's a real risk that, at some point it could come to a head and, you know, create a big rift in the family. But my part is that I can do things that mitigate that risk. That's such a good way of looking at it. Um, I, I work for an insurance company, so it's, it's, it's useful for me to think in terms of that way too. So <laughs> right. Fears, fears can be dealt with rationally, not in the moment that we're feeling it. In the in that moment, that's, that's when you do the pause when agitated because, when when we're having a big emotional reaction, it, those chemicals overtake in our brain the ability to think about it rationally, and that's why that's why we do the pause. But there's so many fears that I can you know mitigate in advance of them happening, and and there's, there's other fears that there's absolutely nothing I can do about whatsoever. You know, like I'm on an airplane, is it going to crash? Well, that's completely out of my hand. <laughs> so yeah. so um, just just sort of having a plan of how to deal with fears is, is, is how I do it. I give that one example when I went to a new meeting and it was a split level building and I freaked out. I freaked out because there was the sign that said AA in between a set of stairs going up and a set of stairs. <laughs> and I was, I just stopped in my tracks and went, <gasps> I, know. Like, I don't know what, why I had that reaction, but I, it's because, one of my issues is I'm afraid I'm going to look stupid. Yeah, you're going to walk I'm, into the wrong because, room and say. <laughs> because my because my dad always did, deliberately did stuff to right. make you look stupid because right. you know because that's how he got over on you and made you feel small. And um, so, but I just I just paused and I thought, okay, it's 6:45 a.m. Probably the only people here are the people going to the meeting. If I go to the wrong room, it's probably empty. And if it's and if it's not, then there's probably other people that have made the same mistake that I'm making, <laughs> right? And so, and so, so then I could walk through the fear. Right, right, yeah. No, that's a that's a wonderful way of looking at it. I, I think I'm I'm going to be adopting that approach. Is just uh, mitigating the risk. It makes to, it makes total sense. So when you're writing about amends. Um, my my actual experience with amends is was uh, pretty along the lines of what you were writing about. Is that um, most of my amends I needed to make were self were were to myself. Um, I wonder if you can talk about the amends process just to make sure. I don't want to I don't want to put words into I don't want to have misunderstood what I read, but it seemed like that's that's the approach that you were taking. Yeah. Um... I think we, you know, we, we went over some of them and well, when we did step four, we, 
we I added a harm to self section. There's already a harm to other section, but um, but I looked at harm to self, and so one I I hold myself to impossibly high standards, and that I can't live up to them, and you know, and it also makes me criticize other people that aren't living up to my standards, which is not why should they? It's not their standards, right? So, um, I I just I I look at those things. And so I'm going to stop trying to hold myself to such impossibly high standards. I may make mistakes. That doesn't mean I am a mistake. To my childhood conditioning is not your behavior. You know, this behavior was inappropriate. Let's learn how to do it differently. It was shame on you. You're in disgrace. Go to your room. So, so when I make a mistake, I feel like that. Like, oh, I'm going to get sent out. I'm, you know, I'm being expelled from the group because I'm so horrible and and I I learned to um stop doing that to myself you know I just just being kinder to myself another thing is blowing my mistakes all out of proportion and when actually I'm only contributing a small part of the whole picture you know, but I'll take responsibility for the entire failure if it fails. I, I, yeah. And then as a sort of positive amends, one of my traits is to fail, fail to acknowledge my achievements. The, you know, and so make a list of your past accomplishments, graduations, jobs, promotions, performances, contests. Things that were hard that you got through, but you got through them, losing weight, quitting smoking, getting in shape, finishing a big project, staying sober for however long it's been. You know, take say, yes, I did that. That was me. Way to go, me. I deserve some credit for that. Because I I was just, I was great at, at belittling my contributions. I, I won a huge, I'm a, you know, after I was an engineer, I became a, a a criminal defense attorney, and I won a huge trial one time, like that you would never expect the defense to win, and the guy would be in prison for the rest of his life, and I really thought he was innocent, so it was, it was pretty high stakes, and I won, and I'm getting all these big kudos from the other attorneys, and I, and I said, well, you know, my supervisor made a couple suggestions, that's probably what put it over the edge. I, well, I couldn't, and I, I got into an Ivy League college, and I was like, well, that's probably just because my grandfather went there. That's why they let me in. You know, I <laughs> so, well, I also had good grades and good tests. Right. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 yeah. I belittle my own part in it and, and give the credit to somebody else all the time. So it, these are amends that I need to make. Yeah. Yes, I had a part in this. I did this. Yeah. And when you go, when, when you start getting into the recovery process, you will, you will achieve goals. You will get things done that you weren't able to do because of your addiction. And I had a lot of that in my recovery. I went back to school, you know, my life got better. I was achieving things. But the problem that um, I had in my little home group is boy, they really drummed in this really harsh, um, idea of humility that you couldn't even talk about anything like, Hey, I graduated, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, <laughs> it's like me, 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 me. It's like, it's like, no, no. And, and, um, yeah. So because I came into the program in my twenties, I was 25 and spent most of my life there. I am still working on coming out of that mentality where, I have to let myself know it's okay to take credit for something that I achieved. See that that's because that's geared at narcissists who take credit for other people's work and take, you know, and, and take more credit than is due them. But I'm the opposite. I take less credit than is due. You know, it's, I mean, it's so hard for me to, to even, I wish this book, I wish you didn't have to buy it. I mean, I didn't know how to, my heart said write this because it might be helpful to some people, 
but you know, it comes out in the form of a book and it costs money to do that. And you hope to at least make back what you put into it. But it, I cannot advertise. <laughs> I cannot self-promote. I you know, I just feel terrible doing it. Oh, I know. And, um, I, I, I'm, I'm there too. And I'm, I, and as a podcaster, you almost have to do some of that and I, I'm not good about doing it and I need to do more of it. Um, I, I, so I was, will sometimes put down what I do with the podcast, but when I was reading your book, seriously, Beth, when I read it, I said, I'm so glad she wrote this. This is a huge contribution to the recovery literature. There isn't anything out there right now that I know of that talks about self-esteem issues in relation to the 12 steps. You really, you treat, you treat the program very respectfully and with someone who actually understands it and knows it. And it, and I just thought it was great. Like I said, you know, um, this is, this is, this is like going back to going back to 1988 and giving this to that kid that was just starting out and say, Hey, maybe check this out. You, know, you might, you might not, you don't necessarily have to be, um, the power driver. <laughs> but anyway. Right. Right. And, and so when I came in, I was so vulnerable and, and I had such a weak sense of self that I believed every, I tried to believe everything they told me. And, you know, and I tried to adopt, if you say, this is how I am, then I guess that's how I am. And it was just not a good fit at all. I mean, it was really a misdiagnosis. Exactly. Exactly. And it was, and it was damaging. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, a waste of time. It was damaging. Right. Because it re-traumatized me. Right. And you got a lot of help outside too, right? You, 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 therapy yes. and so forth. Mm-hmm. And you, well, yeah, I mean, all this stuff, cause it wasn't, it's not addressed in AA. Right. I got outside help for all of this. Yeah. Right. Well, again, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for coming on this podcast and talking about it. You did a great job um, explaining it to, to me. For, thank you for having me. I, yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's been fun. I look forward to seeing you again one of these days. It's been a long time. Um, I look forward to seeing almost anybody anymore. <laughs> uh, right. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.